Hello and welcome to a brand new year with First Principles, the leadership podcast from the Ken. I'm Rohan Dharma Kumar, your host. If like me, you can't wait to put 2022 firmly in the past and make 2023 a year worth remembering, then episode 11 is absolutely for you. Because Deep Kalra, the founder and chairman of online travel behemoth Make My Trip, epitomizes the essence of this podcast. Few entrepreneurs can claim to have seen as many ups and downs of India's tech-driven startup evolution as Deep, because he started Make My Trip in 2000, when not only was it not fashionable, but it was not even viable to run an internet business dependent on consumer transactions from India, which is probably why Make My Trip focused on the U.S. market and the overseas Indian community. That's not all. At one point, Make My Trip was mailing out, that's physically mailing out, so many paper tickets to its flight customers that it seriously considered acquiring a courier company. E-ticketing, something we take for granted today, was a lifesaver for Make My Trip. Officially, says Deep, he has two children, age twenty-one and twenty-three. Unofficially, his third child is Make My Trip, age twenty-two. In a wide-ranging conversation spanning over two decades of entrepreneurial struggle, resilience, and success, Deep gives us a masterclass on building to last. Before you dive in, I'd like to tell you that we at the Ken Two have very ambitious plans for 2023. So, if you'd like to work with us, head over to theken.com/careers and check out all the open roles, which include, by the way, those of podcast hosts. And podcast producers, onto the episode. Welcome. The first time we spoke officially for the Ken was the month the Ken was launched, which was October two thousand sixteen, and Make My Trip had just announced its merger with Go Ivibo. And of course, like you know, here we are in twenty twenty two, almost twenty twenty three. If you were to go back to October two thousand sixteen, when the merger happened. and when you were looking forward what do you see now that you possibly didn't see back then yeah and firstly thank you for having me here and before i answer your question uh so obviously i'm your good luck charm then right <laughs> so i was among your first interviews so uh, so ken uh, i'm happy to see ken do so well so actually it's wonderful to see a startup and i know the risk you took so someone should do a podcast on uh, the entrepreneur uh, that rohan is which is great so um i guess it would be fair to say that uh, you know our hand was forced to do that mna uh, it was not something which uh, you know we thought we'll do right off the cuff it wasn't something like uh, i'm i'm a firm believer that mnas are really hard to make them work so i do believe that 80% of mna fail and i'll also tell you why they fail i also tell you why this one didn't fail and we are in that minority 20% 
So uh, Goaibibo was privately funded. Uh, it was funded by Naspers. They, you know, owned 100% of the company. And, you know, Naspers had a playbook at that point of time that we Which were... burn a lot of money. Yeah, we'll burn a lot of share. money. We'll build a good product. So I have to say the product was good. And the product and the tech was good, which was my turning point to agree to finally buy them out. I, and that's a very interesting story. But fundamentally, they said that, listen, we're going to build a hotel business. No one's done a hotel business. Uh, we'll try to sell air tickets also. And we'll build it on the back of good product, but also aggressive discounting because we've seen it in enough markets and it's discounting which opens up markets. And they had great experience, whether you look at, you know, their whole Tencent journey in China or you look at uh, some of the other verticals around the world. So I think they knew what they were doing. And of that, there are normally three outcomes. So one outcome of that is that uh, the market gives you enough lead uh, leash and says, go ahead and build a big business. And, uh, you know, a market like the US and China would say, we just value growth. It doesn't matter what your economics are. That, I think, was unlikely to happen in India. In fact, last year of IPOs has shown that India is still not ready for that. The second is that, uh, you know, large company out there uh, will probably have to buy you out at some point of time because you'll be a thorn in their side. And the third one is that you'll blow up. And I think they were willing to take those risks and they forced an outcome B, which was uh, something at that point of time. We, we competed, I think, head on for a couple of years. Um, it started hurting our business. The fact that we were public didn't help. Uh, PNL started looking pretty bad on the hotel side. We were bleeding a lot of money there. And uh, no matter what we did, because uh, India, I think like almost all e-com markets around the world is very price competitive. So, and it was, so people would turn on a dime and they'd be comparing rates all the time. And if something was, you know, going to be 10 to 20% cheaper, it was the same hotel room uh, or the same flight ticket. Luckily in flights, we held on, I think, to market share. Uh, people would flip and that started to hurt us. So eventually we took a concerted call and we, you know, I think thought long and hard about it. And we went ahead and we did this uh, buyout of the entire company. So we bought out Naspers 100% their stake. With in. the benefit of hindsight, would you do it again? Yeah, most definitely. And I'll tell you why. Uh, because um, Vibo today is fully integrated, of course. It, got in, it took a good two, three years. Mm -hmm. We also had Red Bus. They had Red Bus in the mix. And I was very keen on the Red Bus asset. We had actually thrown our hat in for Red Bus earlier on as well. At that point of time, I think it was, uh, I think Naspers bought it for 110 or 120 million. And we had Red gone. Bus was the bus aggregation service started. Yeah, by bus Fun. ticketing service started by Fanindra and then turned professional. And uh, I thought that was a fantastic asset, clear market leader, fantastic product, no real competition. And great customer understanding. And so we were very keen on that business way back then. But I don't think we'd gone beyond 70 million. That was our valuation. And if you're in the business, in the trade, you'll always value things more realistically, which means lower, right? Because you know what it's worth. So uh, we had missed it then. And here was an opportunity to get Redbus. So Redbus has worked out very well for us. We've grown it even further. It runs as an independent company based in Bangalore. Stellar management team led by Prakash and Anoop and, you know, really a very great culture too, awesome company. So that transition of Redbus from a founder-driven company, a bunch of founders, funny and team, to a professional-driven company is full credit actually to uh, Prakash, who I mentioned, uh, who's an FMCG guy, Prakash Sangam, and Anoop, and who was CTO. And both of them just took it on and made it their company. 
and the culture there is amazing. So we got that. And go Ibibo, the point I was making, my turning point actually for uh, going ahead with that deal, I was in complete like, we're not going to buy this. Why would we buy a discounting shop? It makes no sense at all, right? Let them run their money out. We'll just build better product. We'd hired someone who had actually worked with them, a uh, fairly senior guy. And he was saying that, listen, you, you know, I've been in the company and make my trip long enough and I've seen your uh, supply side software. So just taking a couple of steps back, in any B2C business, you can see the B2C front end very well. We interact with it. So you know everything about Make My Trip Go Ibibo, Redbus has to offer, just like anything else. But you don't see the backend. And typically the... The backend implying the integrations that they have or like, you know, their own internal systems, etc. The engine, the integration, the backward integration with the supply side. We don't see that. And that is where the magic lies. And for all you know, it could be someone just running the software off an Excel sheet and doing an end of the day. It's pretty much more than that because... No, no, I'm just saying that from the front end, you can't tell the difference. Yeah, I mean, from, you know, at the back end, you could have one plug Mm. into an aggregator. Got it. But you just keep discounting. But if you've done hard work to work with various suppliers, Mm. in fact, the analogy comes from the auto industry where they say, you know, what lies beneath the hood and beneath the hood is the magic. So in... You know, cars might look great, but actually at the end of the day, it's the engine and an EV is no engine also. But um, that's the same thing in B2C and e-com or in anything uh, which is internet is really what's happening behind the scene. So he said, you've got to see their system and their supplier uh, uh, system, how Goibibo interacts with various uh, hotels, individual hotels, big hotels. And he says, that's something special. They call it Ingo. I said, okay, let's take a look. So he got me access to it. And we were in our boardroom, a bunch of us seeing it. He was projecting it. It was meant to be like maybe the usual an hour long meeting went on for several hours. It was eye opening because they had actually built a fantastic system, something which I think anyone, it would be like globally probably among the best systems. And it put our system to shame. And it takes very long to build these because the integrations then take Mm -hmm. time. And the most painful thing in online business is actually uh, legacy. So legacy systems to get them to talk is a nightmare. Like to say that, yeah, we'll buy this, we'll buy this, we'll snap it together does not work because everyone's built on different, very often on different kind of code. So at that point of time, I said, wow, these guys, someone has built a great system out there. And that someone turned out to be their CTO, who was a class act, who worked with us for three, three and a half years. Vikalp Sani, fantastic guy. And he had worked and toiled very hard on that system along with another guy called Rahul Goel. Both of them worked with us for several years after that and helped us actually on the hotel side build very robust systems. So credit to NASPERS and to the Go uh, IBBO leadership because normally when you're building a player in a category with the hope to kind of exit or to sell it, you do not typically invest in really like, you know, robust technology right because you only invest in technology that gets the job done yeah absolutely right credit to them credit to naspers credit to the management team they got these really young guys but very passionate to build something special i mean vikal joined i believe as a senior engineer as an engineer went all the way to bcto and he was really one of their co-founders and then now he's turned uh, entrepreneur and uh, you know no secret i'm backing him because he's just a fantastic guy one of the best uh, uh, dev guys I've seen. So, uh, uh, you know, which is people who just love working with their own hands. 
and i worked very closely with both these two guys actually in building um, the arogya setu app which we built as a ppp project and they were the two guys who actually built it from our side for the government with a team of 20 and i was acting program manager product manager with them and i just saw the kind of passion and the kind of tech chops they had so netnet it helped us a lot and it was well worth doing so no regrets it only worked because both rajesh uh, mago my uh, co-founder rajesh and i made it our uh, mission critical that we've got to make this work both of us got completely involved in saying we are going to integrate this we're going to treat it like you know the people like our people like our company this is not an excel calculation this is not a powerpoint where we say a plus b is going to be equal to a big huge c not at all because we were very very clear we had to get value because we had paid a pretty penny for it and uh, naspers had invested more naspers stayed on invested actually that was also testament to the fact i think they clearly saw that you know here 2 plus 1 was going to be equal to 5 and i think it worked out pretty well could right. i ask you would i do explain... another large m&a <laughs> that's a that's a different story altogether <laughs> okay the nature and the act of travel has i believe dramatically changed over the last decade or so how we travel the experience of traveling what we consider you know the 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 market of travel etc and like you know whether it's covid whether it's like you know the rise of online aggregators of various kinds and stuff like that if you're able to zoom out given that you've been in this space for over two decades right how do you see what is travel today as an experience or as a funnel however you see it yeah, how has yeah. that how has travel evolved yeah i think a decade is also in fact a long time to record that change if you really see there've been a few very seminal things which have dramatically changed travel uh you touched on covid we'll talk about that last of all because that has dramatically changed it but even prior to that so i think and we saw that in our lifespan at at make my trip so i think the first really big move uh was uh e-ticketing so prior to e-ticketing there was paper tickets and we you know used to issue I've, a lot of tickets yeah we right. all, I've bought okay. dealt with paper so tickets so you're so you're Those old enough to see yeah yeah i've got one up on my pinup board so after this we should go and uh, see that and it was the only ticket in history i think i've written myself so the uh, my colleagues had a lot of fun getting me to issue a ticket that paper ticket was expensive it was laborious it was tedious you had to ship out paper ticket at one time i kid you not we actually thought should we acquire a courier company we were shipping out tens of thousands of tickets like literally a week and several thousand a day so it was crazy and e ticketing changed that game and you realize what a useless scrap of you know paper that is today even the boarding card technically should be made mandatory that you don't don't need one but then there are people who may not have a smartphone etc so that should be the very exception and on the cheapest paper because it's a completely disposable thing right why do we waste that card is very expensive but people will still go like you know you've got your uh, boarding card on your on your phone and that's good enough so i think we've got to think harder about all this so e ticketing was a big game changer the second big game changer i would say was uh, the advent of low cost carriers particularly for india but even for the rest of the world okay not so long back so we had two waves of low cost carriers the second wave luckily the successful one prior to that we had another wave they weren't really low cost but the new fangled airlines we talk about the east west airlines era e- and all east that. west was one uh, the mania was the other modi luft was the third so there were some right and they were trying to do different things that didn't work out 
But then you had the serious players in the second wave. And, you know, Indigo is today obviously a market leader, not only in India. I think, I, I actually believe it's the finest low-cost airline in the world. It's just, you know, they really, really, performance-wise, they really deliver. People argue it's not low-cost. But, you know, it is, I think, the best example of a reliable airline which gets you from point A to point B consistently each time. And they're innovating all the time. So I think credit to them because of them all the others around them too also most of them did pretty well with a good business model today 80 percent of seats in the country or maybe even yeah 80 percent of seats of the country are low cost and if you look at economy they're probably 95 percent seats i mean there are hardly anyone which are business class seats in the country which makes perfect sense because our longest flight in our country is two and a half hours and most the average flight in our country is a little over one hour that's the size of our country and the way we are shaped you know, we're not linear or we're not flying across so much. So Delhi-Bombay is a two-hour flight, which is probably, it is the most common frequent uh, flight. Or Delhi-Bangalore or Bombay-Bangalore. So everything we're talking about, you know, in that realm of one and a half to two and a half hours. You don't need really a lot of comfort. You need a decent, comfortable seat, neat, clean, get me there on time. Everything needs to work. Can I, can I yeah, expand yeah, that point to, I mean, you're essentially saying that 95% of India is an economy market. Is that like, can we take that as a generalism that given the overall population profile of India and the overall like, you know, affordability criteria, etc. In general, most categories will tend to over a period of time become like an economy category or like a, a cost driven or a cheap because that's what happened with airlines, right? Like no, it's no, only... you're, you're absolutely right. And we'll come to that. It's a reflection of our eco profile, right? Our economic strata and our pyramid. We, if you also look, the venture funded profile because if you need to aim for hyper growth the market only exists correct, at correct. like you know you scale at, but then if you look at let's say cars or hotels or anything else luxury good you have your sliver at the top so it's mm. a direct reflection of you know the economy right i mean you will have one percent of people who can buy anything another five percent of people who can buy a lot of things and then the pyramid we know gets very very broad at the bottom the point I was making on low-cost carriers actually linked but slightly dissimilar, which is fundamentally travel became very cheap. So if you look back and you look at the cost of travel between the same city pairs 15 years ago or pre-low-cost era, it was very expensive. So actually, and that's what no one listens to the airlines, people only get really upset when airline airfares go high. And I have a lot of sympathy for them because we're partners. But no one is rejoicing and saying, oh, thank you for such a cheap fare. But actually, fares have come down tremendously. Delhi, Bombay used to be like people remember fares and all consistently 10,000 rupee fares. You know, my dad talks about it. Uncles talk about it. I remember sometimes we had to take it. It was a very expensive thing because there was a supply issue. Today, there's no supply constraint. There are so many flights between all city pairs that has brought down the price. So travel, getting from point A to point B has become cheap. The third very important factor, which I think we should give full credit to, uh, definitely the current government, is, is roads, and uh, which is the last mile connectivity. Today, you can drive out to most places. Roads in the country have improved dramatically. Yes, we have last mile blockages. We have, I know you come from Bangalore, so my sympathy is with you. But Delhi's, <laughs> that was De below the belt. <laughs> but Delhi's catching up pretty sadly. Huh? It's quite bad. Some of these days, if you come on a big wedding date in this, country, in this city, you can spend two, three hours in your car going for 10 kilometers. So very Bangalore-like. But by and large, you can do this. So today you can go to remote parts of the country, take a flight, and in two hours, take a cab, and you can get to any part or take a long drive. And fourthly is the emergence of 
which was actually uh, further kind of, I think, uh, highlighted during COVID of homestays or the unhotel. So the non-hotel has changed things a lot. You know, earlier on, it was you have chains. So five stars, four stars, some three stars. Then you have independence, which are typically either in hills or in Goa. And you had these few hotels, which were nice independence and all. Now people realized, and I think we have to give credit to Airbnb where it's due, who really surfaced this around the world and said, hey, anyone who's got a spare room can be a host. And then suddenly we realized... How significant is this trend in India today? Massive. It's very hard and to get a sense of its like penetration or depth. I'll give you an idea. So COVID brought it mainstream completely. Pre-COVID, we were pushing this very hard because we saw it as something which was actually a win-win-win. It was great for the homeowner, right? Because you made extra income sitting out there. You had to provide BNB at the most. And you had very often youngsters had left, kids had left, parents had most of the room empty and they were up in the hills. Secondly, there were no other options there. You want to go to Binsar, but there are no hotels or before there were no hotels. And there are many tiny places like this, which are just remote and beautiful and you want to be out there. And so win for them. It was a win for the consumer, which anyone who stayed in a nice homestay will stay much better experience than a hotel. And there's a very simple reason. And we've made homestay huge. Like we've actually created a homestay awards category, which we did a few months ago for the, and it's going to become even bigger. I call it the, you know, morning chai in pajamas to the late night gana and singing uh, in pajamas kind of thing. You can only do that in a homestay. I mean, sure, some people in hotels can get a suite, everyone can be together, but by and large, you can do it. And that's your own space. You have the privacy of your own rooms, whether it's a large joint family traveling or it's a bunch of friends traveling, but you have the common space, which is the common space is the heart of a homestay, which is very often the, you know, drawing room area and you just lounge there if you have a pool then nothing like it etc so it's become and the third win is it's great for the ecosystem people like us too so it's really important so for because us it creates a new pool of supply new pool we have now uh close to sixty thousand homestays uh on our platform uh if i'm correct and it's growing all the time and this is just a fantastic place to stay and by the way goa Bibo had built a system for this too which we modified a little bit the ingo platform so I think it's all these factors have changed the way we travel in a dramatic fashion, including, by the way, going overseas. So as you know, getting a passport in India today is very quick, uh, very easy. And no visa or visa on arrival is a big game changer. So wherever your visa on arrival, Indians will go. And wherever you have a direct flight, Indians will go. And imagine the intersection of all of these kind of Venn diagram circles, which is a low-cost airline. Flying overseas means cheap cost and there's visa on arrival or no visa. And boom, you have Indians now going to Vietnam. And it's not only because of Indigo from different parts, also because of Vietjet. Or you have Indians going to Kazakhstan because of a direct flight. Pre-Ukraine war, uh, I went to Kiev twice in 2018. There was a direct flight. I went to see a Champions League final and I had a friend's 50th birthday. And we was like, wow, what a beautiful place. And it's really sad what's happened. But because there's a direct flight. So you need a direct flight and you need a reasonable kind of, you know, airfare, which you normally will have when someone launches a direct flight. Indians today are the most welcomed and preferred travelers around the world. That has changed. At one point of time, it used to be, it was never Indians. People used to say Indians are loud, they're boisterous, what they're changed? noisy. Well, two or three factors. And again, part of it is relative. First thing is Indians spend a lot when they travel. And Singapore was the first to figure that out. Singapore, you'd come out with these tables and say, 
highest spenders when they come. And so India was always like number one or two. Number one was Indonesians that come and gamble. And number two was, and it was next door for them. Number two was Indians. Because for us, holiday travel is celebration. When we are there, we are saying, listen, time to live it up. You know, pull all stops. We are going to go to the best places. We must eat here because we are here. We go to the finest places. We must shop because we'll come back and we have to carry gifts for everyone. We have to show everyone we've been abroad. We are the opposite of the Chinese traveler who uh, is the average Chinese traveler is very, very penny wise. They travel typically with In, their cup of noodles, that's right. take them to their room, hot water. It's true. So a lot of hotel chains are telling us we want now Indian travelers more and more. Uh, and uh, so it's a it's a big change. And, you know, recently I was in far-flung Tasmania. And uh, over there, I was amazed. I was talking to, whenever I go, I obviously have a conversation with the hotel and asking. And I was amazed at how many Indians are there and how they love getting Indian guests again. Because they're saying when Indians come, the F&B tab goes through the roof. So, you know, power to the Indian growing kind of traveler. I want to go a little bit into Make My Trip. Sure. And I usually have a question here, which is, can you explain what the company does in one line? And yeah. I feel it's Make I, My Trip, but I still kind of put it to you for the fairness of it. What is Make yeah, My Trip yeah. today? We, we actually tried to do it in, in our brand itself. So, mm -hmm. so when we chose the brand Make yeah. My Trip, thought long and hard about it. But mm -hmm. yeah, I think as a fairly straightforward business, uh, you know, we, we allow people the ability to research, uh, uh, choose and buy travel, uh, all modes of travel uh, and accommodation online is, is our business model. How old is Make My Trip? We're 22 years old. And would it be fair to say Make My Trip makes most of its money from transactions when yeah. people are? Actually, I want to rephrase that. We're 22 years young. <laughs> is what we should say. So we'll come I, I to like that. saying that. We'll, we, we'll, we'll come yeah. to that because that itself really? is like a yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> nice segue sure, for sure. us. Sorry, what was your question after that? No, uh, most of your money comes from transactions. Oh yeah, like, absolutely. Ad tech for us is there. It's a new line of business came up in COVID. And, uh, but otherwise we're a transaction business. Yeah. How many employees are there roughly today? At So we've got close to 3,000 employees in, in the Go make my go MMT, which is make my trip, and now we've just got NCLT clearance now. So maybe you're a good luck charm. It happened a couple of weeks <laughs> ago, so we've got uh, that full merger approved, etc. And then Redbus on its own is about fifteen hundred odd employees as well. You were one of the first tech companies from India to list. You listed on Nasdaq. When do, when was that? Yeah, we listed in two thousand ten. It was August 2010 and we were definitely the first. Actually, interestingly, we were the second internet company from India to list. Sadly, the first listing didn't work out very well. That was Rediff. Rediff.com, right. which was, I think, ahead of their time. Uh, Ajit Balakrishna is a real visionary and I have a lot of respect for the gentleman. Learned a lot from him. Uh, but, you know, I think at that point of time, the market just wasn't ready to support a model which was non-transaction, to your point. Uh, so that had already become, I think they got delisted, became a penny stock. So when we listed, we were the first travel company from India to list uh, uh, on NASDAQ or in the US. And we were, I guess, one of the first few tech uh, companies, internet companies to list there. Would you remember how much of venture capital you had raised before you listed? Oh yeah, it's not, not hard to this thing. We'd done four rounds and I probably remember the total of each. So 
the first round, we'd got five into the company. Four was to buy out uh, angels. Second round was probably about in 20. So I'm just going to, I'm going to say about 70 million or so. All right. Yeah. 70 million. If you were to like start a new Make My Trip, if, if Make My Trip didn't exist and you were starting it today, would $70 million be enough to build a business? I think it could have been because A, that happened over a 10-year life cycle. And first five years, as you know, we just struggled. So really, those four rounds were between 2005 to 2010. Uh, I think we do it very differently. I'd do it very differently today. How I would so? definitely have one less zero in the number of people. I would love to say two less zeros, but that's very hard to do. I mean, uh, I, I would love to be more pure play, which is very hard in a transaction business. But still, uh, I think given where AI is today and just... You know, of course, the internet's on fire right now with ChatGPT and I've been pulling around and playing with it and just having the time of my life. I think you can do much more today with tech and with AI, which is really going forward. With I think fewer it's people. Much fewer people and more reliably and better. So I think we'd structure the business differently. But given competition, given the cost of advertising, etc. today, I think that would would probably take the number back up again. So maybe we'd end up in, you know, 100 million or so. But less than 100 million today is pretty hard to build a brand in India. It's become a very competitive space. Do you want to tell us why you listed in NASDAQ at the no. NASDAQ in 2010? And whether today, given that listing in India is a viable option, how that route has changed for other startups as well? Sure. And, and you know, it was viable even then to list in India. And Rohan, that was the one decision where I think the board, our board was split down the middle. Till then, we had a pretty harmonious board. And I can say I, I thought we did a good job of managing a good board, etc. But when it came to listing, firstly, uh, it sounds a little strange and crazy, but I didn't think we could list at that point of time. It was uh, Sanjeev Bikchandani, who, who was on our board as an independent. Sanjeev told us, listen, your numbers, he was at a board meeting in it was the last quarter of 2009. Yeah. The, so in January, we were reviewing the last quarter of 2009. We had a board meeting in Jan. And he says, I think you guys are ready to list. I said, are you serious? He says, yeah, we listed in 2007 and we were smaller than you guys. And you guys are growing so fast. And you're doing this thing. You should think about listing. And I remember Rajesh and I looking at each other and saying, seriously? Like, we can, we can. We want to eventually. We didn't know. He says, you should. So the next question was where? And... Um, so there were many pros and cons for both markets. And the US and, and I had, you know, three US-based investors on the board. And all three of them were obviously pretty keen on the US market because they understood that well. The independents were pretty keen on India. I mean, you know, just being Indian, having grown up in India and, you know, done all my education in India, I was very excited about India and we would get the big advantage of brand in India. But the markets just weren't ready. So it was a pretty heated debate. I seek time out for a week and I said, okay, folks, I'm going to give me a week. I'll come back. And for that week, I literally spoke to as many people as I could who had experience in listing in both markets and, you know, wise men. So I remember reaching out to Nandan, who I knew a bit. Nandan put me on to Mondas Pai, was very helpful, generous with his time, gave me, you know, half an hour of his time on the phone and told me about their experience. Infosys, which had always been kind of a North Star for us, the way they had built that company, the culture, the, you know, very, very wide spread out stock. So I was always inspired by him. He spoke about it. 
uh, one of my classmates and good friends from IIM Ahmedabad had been on the board of Bharti and few other companies from Warburg Pincus. Uh, this is Pulak uh, Prasad. I spoke to Pulak and Pulak gave me his point of view. Uh, I spoke to interestingly um, on Mobi, uh, not not Naveen's company, not uh, in Mobi, on mobile. Rajesh. Yeah, yeah, Rajesh. yeah, I spoke to him and at that point Rajesh in time. Rajesh Reddy. Uh, I think there was a Rao gentleman. No, sorry, sorry. My bad. That's that's different. That's right. Uh, Arvind Rao. Arvind. So I spoke that's to right. him and a bunch of people who had listed in both markets and they had, you know, one or the other and a good point of view, uh, Ajit Balakrishna and and few others. And net-net, I came to the conclusion that I didn't listen to the bankers then because the bankers were very clear. Like the foreign bankers want to list in the US, the Indian bankers wanted to list here. There was a bias. So I came to the conclusion that India wasn't ready for internet businesses, despite Nokri having listed and done well, which was InfoEdge. And the fundamental difference was InfoEdge was collected their money from enterprises. They, we were their clients and we would cut them a check and they had salespeople. But everything online was free, right? Making a CV, etc. Yes, they tried to charge a little bit more. So it was a very different business from ours. Ours was a classic B2C business. So I came to the conclusion that US has got I think I'd already counted at that point close to 100 online businesses, of which a third were international. So a lot of Chinese companies had listed there, some you know Latin American companies. They're all listed on the NASDAQ by and large over NYSE. And you know that's what we went with that. And uh, at that point of time, I think it was the right decision. And absolutely today, India is just so exciting. So yeah, I mean, I think given the right point of time, we definitely uh, would I mean, it's already out in the open, so we would we would look at it. There's no question. How old are you? I'm 53. Um, and do you have kids? Yeah, yeah, yeah. How old are they? So uh, officially, I've got uh, two kids. Unofficially, I have a third, which is make my make trip. My trip. Yeah, so <laughs> just yesterday, someone asked me. I said I have three kids. They're 21, 22, and 23. So 22 <laughs> is make my trip. So I have a daughter who's 23. Uh, she's just finished her undergrad and I have a son who's 21. He's about to finish his grad. And uh, yeah, they have uh, clearly, I think, grown up with Make My Trip and Make My Trip's grown up with them. So for the first five years, I, I think I definitely didn't give as much time as I would have liked to. I don't think I missed any big occasion, but you know. But still, as a parent, yeah, you know oh, that. Oh yeah, like, absolutely. You know, and full you credit to my wife, I was com- consumed is the word. And uh, I think there were just so many nights spent in office. I mean, that's the reality. And there's no other way to build a business. And not just me, there were at least 20 guys spending, you know, a good part of their waking hours all in office, keeping a toothbrush in office, sleeping under desks, on desks, chairs, whatever. So I think that was part of it. After that, I think one managed to kind of um, prioritize. So, and, and cut out the noise. So then it was always like, it's either, you know, it's either work or family. So yeah, family is uh, pretty much the core. Uh, so at 50, actually, when I turned 50, uh, for some reason, all these milestones are important. I uh, was very keen to actually go non-executive. And uh, because I had Rajesh and who was very uh, happy to, he was already CEO. Who was your co-founder and yeah. CEO. Yeah. Rajesh started as CFO and then he was his co-founder, CEO. I was full-time executive chairman. I was working out very well. I wanted to take out more time. Uh, for uh, what I call things that matter, which is largely, uh, you know, personal stuff, family, not-for-profits, 
there are various ones which I'm uh, quite quite close to uh, and wanted to take out more time. Uh, but then A, the board wouldn't have any of it. B, Rajesh wouldn't have any, any of it. And then COVID happened. So COVID happened. And then obviously for the next two years. Back in. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. We were flat out on survival mode. I mean, we had the money to survive, but uh, we were obliterated as a business, like all travel businesses around the world. I mean, it completely, completely demolished. And then we had to rebuild. But then when everything came back, um, and uh, so I restarted this discussion. And thankfully this time, so we found a kind of a common ground. So I'm non-executive in paper, but, uh, you know, like today, I, I, if I'm in town, I do come in. I come in, you know, once or twice a week and I'm always there on critical stuff. I'm on top of all the stuff, but then day to day, I'm not uh, involved uh, any longer, which uh, I'm enjoying. But having said that, it's been six months. So uh, people who have done this before are willing to bet any amount that this doesn't last too long and you come right back. Let's see. Time will tell. So you're going to go into remission. <laughs> or uh, you're going I, to I'm like... really enjoying the freedom, to be honest. I'm uh, A, traveling like a maniac. Me and my wife share many common passions, hmm. but one is travel. So this year has been and anyway out of COVID. So we, well, we actually traveled through COVID also. But uh, we've been traveling, we've been... Uh, I'm assuming yeah. you always use Make My Trip while traveling. Uh, yes, sometimes <laughs> go I <Ibibo> too. <laughs> but no, actually, I have to be honest, uh, for some parts of the world that I've traveled, it wasn't possible. So I'm quite happy. I, by the way, quite often use competition. To figure out what all, they're doing all, better. All the time, if at all, but all the time. And uh, my colleagues hate it because after that, they get very long notes. First, they used to be written notes. Now they get very long voice notes uh, about good, bad, ugly, everything else. And uh, but I think it's important. I am definitely an Andy Grove scam saying, uh, you know, only the paranoid survive. This is very interesting. So, I mean, I get that you come across interesting features or you see something and you write like a note or you send like a voice note. I'm very curious to understand how what happens to that after you've sent it, because often what happens is. It's come, bunch of people read it, and yes, there is stuff in there that needs to be done, needs more work. But then there is also this pressure of all the other things that we have to do. So some like how do you ensure that such occasion, whether it's from you or other people, thoughtful feedback which comes in, which doesn't directly correlate to something that you're already building or shipping, how does it get prioritized? It's it's a great question. You've clearly struggled with the same thing yourself. I can see that. Like only someone who's a tech founder can understand this because they say, hello, there's a backlog. All this is there at all. So yeah, I think the prioritization is the key, like in everything in life. So to get buy-in is very important. And I think that's pretty much my style of, uh, you know, working. Uh, I'm never going to say, listen, drop everything else and do this unless, you know, we are systems down. That's obvious, right? So if it's a new suggestion, I'd say, listen, you know the ups of the upside, whatever potential. This is where we got to get together and see how critical this is. But who I do you send it to? So I'll typically send it to uh, a respected product manager or uh, like a group of people. So it. chief product officer typically, uh, and then it's up to him uh, to decide who it goes to. Chief technology, copy him, copy Rajesh for sure, uh, and maybe one or two of the business folks. So it'll be four or five people on it. And say, listen, let's figure, let's come back and let's anyway have a detailed discussion on this in a week's time. So let's have a discussion. Some will get discarded. And very often, I'm very happy to hear, actually, very often they say, oh, this is in the works. What this helps do is accelerate that. 
also very often, you know, people are defensive. They say, yeah, yeah, we thought of this as a buried asset. Well, I think it's good. And then it'll get a little bit more of this thing. So I think you've got to, thrusting things down good people's throat is a bad idea uh, always. And exactly for the reason you said, Rohan, they're working on a ton of stuff. They're busy already. Right? It's not like they're sitting twiddling their thumbs and saying, oh, everything's like buzzing and humming, right? There's nothing to do. I'm just sitting back and watching. No, they're doing a lot of stuff. And, and there's attrition and there's talent wars and there's everything else going on. And now, oh God, another note from Deep. So I think that's what happens first. Yeah. So I give them a warning. Okay, guys, long voice note to follow. And then they say, okay, let's Yeah, I tend to do that as well. This is not urgent. Yeah, and important but not urgent like, yeah. kind of thing. But also long. So... You know, I, I, I think uh, when you review it and you realize that uh, there's some aspects of it which are worth looking at, it seems to work out well. I do have some irritating habits, so which is reminders. Uh, so I do, uh, you know, have my own system, my unique what system of, of keeping, uh, you know, I just keep reminders. So, you know, at any point of time online in my own way, whether it's a flag on my emails or it's a reminder date or whatever else, I do have it. And I just like to know because I will forget. I've realized that there's that much I can keep in my brain. I don't want to clutter it with uh, mundane stuff like reminders, but it's important. I think it keeps everyone, uh, you know, on their toes and honest. And it's nice to kind of know what's going on with this. And I think subtly but surely you start building up a culture which is high performance also, which is like, listen, if we've agreed that this is important, then let's do it. You know, either or we disagree. And that's perfectly okay. I mean, I absolutely love people who disagree uh, my interviewing mantra by the way is only to test two things so i don't ever test for uh, i i still interview most senior people uh we never exchange notes before we've all interviewed the person Every, so that you form your independent opinions. everyone who interviews has the power of veto uh, that's very clear because veto is a very strong thing so it's like what i call the security council kind of rule uh but i'm only Typically gauging two things. I mean, there's nothing on skill I can gauge on someone who's either a techie or a product guy or a, you know, finance guy or a legal guy. I just can't, right? I don't have those skills. So one thing is, um, you know, I think own independent thought and ability to stand by, it's a really conviction. I'm testing for conviction. Like, do you have conviction? Can you, you know, basically, if you put a stake in the ground, can you protect it right or wrong? It could how, be as, how, as how silly as, uh, you know, what our test cricket team should be. If you're interested in cricket, not if you're not. Or uh, Messi versus Ronaldo, which I sadly... Or, uh, that so you're de- testing that for is strong, strong Just, opinions and strong beliefs. Yeah, and conviction, right? Or, or political, which is like, you can't be in India and not have a view on politics or cricket or religion. You've got to have some views, right? And then mm-hmm. can you really defend them? Or business today, what's happening around us? And the second thing is just cultural fit. For me, that's huge. I've seen the best of guys, the smartest of people not work out with us and not because they're not good. They're probably too good, uh, but they won't fit in in our system because, you know, I think our system is a lot around uh, team play. We're truly a football team. Uh, we're not We're not playing uh, you know, tennis or the Davis Cup. Where How do you assess this in a person when you interviewing them whether they are truly a team player or not because I'm assuming everyone will claim that they are a team player. Yeah, yeah you don't ask. Especially at a Yeah, I don't think you ever ask that question. That makes no sense. Uh, a, multiple interviews really helps. 
uh, I think different settings, uh, by the way, ref checks, uh, non-offered ref checks are very important. Like if someone's offering a ref check, there's no point even talking to that referee, right? You have to ask someone who's not. I think it's how much you probe and how you see uh, how they're willing to kind of uh, work around, get along, social settings, group interviews. Uh, sometimes that's pretty interesting also. Uh, I, I think it's a hunch. It's at the end of the day and we don't get it right each time. I think we get it right between seven to eight out of 10. Uh, we don't, but we've definitely averted some disasters because you saw those red flags early. Also how people react to even simple things like the comp discussion, which I won't have, but you know, HR will have with them, which is a trade-off between stock and uh, cash. And it's very interesting to test because if you give a much better offer, which has much more stock, but I believe beyond a certain point, people actually don't need more cash up to a certain point, right? And this is the good old classic Amazon way of looking at it. They're like apparently the highest cash until some time back was 250K. But then there was tons of stock, which made them tons of wealth, right? Because why would you need more than quarter million kind of thing? And it was a great philosophy if you think about it. I think the India market's got twisted somewhere. And again, that's probably it's food now. for enough. Yeah, it's correcting now. But overall, I think, uh, you know, people tend to chase that a lot. And for me, that's always a bad sign because someone's always going to offer you more money. And I believe the best companies, the best employers don't pay the highest. They don't need to. I mean, they need to. And we have this beautiful financial instrument called the stock option or RSU. We have RSUs, restricted stock units which perfectly aligns company goals and employee wealth creation. So why would you even, and, and longevity, right? You can have a four-year vesting cycle, five-year vesting cycle. So I, th I think we should use that much more. So just, just stuff like that, really. Yeah. Also, you know, ask really things around what makes them take, you know, what do they like doing besides work, whether it's family, friends, going out, things like that really tells you a lot. All right. I think we can take like a short break. Yeah, here. I just get a. This is on, right? Yeah, it's, yeah, on. it's, it's on. on. It's on. How would you describe your attitude towards money and wealth? I think uh, it's a necessary evil, but. Uh, I, I think it's a classic kind of uh, Keynesian curve out there. So uh, there is diminishing returns which set in beyond a certain point, And I do believe in that. So I think it's, it's, it's great to have enough. Uh, but then beyond a certain point, it's probably going to be uh, dysfunctional almost. So yeah, luckily never chased it. Uh, I think been fortunate to get, get enough more than I probably expected or deserved. But uh, luckily not had to chase it. So almost all my decisions, even my first job, which was a banking job after my MBA, was not for the money. It was uh, because ABN AMRO was a new bank. I wanted to be in Delhi. My then girlfriend, now wife, was in Delhi. So I wanted to be here. And it was not for uh, the money. There was I, I had two other offers which were paying more money. And my second job was completely crazy. It was a very entrepreneurial job. I worked for a company called AMF Bowling, brought them to India, tried to set up the whole sport of 10-pin bowling, set up these bowling arcades. And I took a huge cut in fixed and the variable never came because, you know, I put in, I think it took me four years to get 200 lanes sold in the country where the plan was 2000 because real estate was expensive in yeah. India, blah, blah, blah. Various reasons, the ROIs were not in the, for the project didn't happen. A lot of learning. I think I cut my entrepreneurial teeth there. 
even when I joined G Capital, I, I think I just wanted to join a company where I could learn because I think I'd stagnated in AMF bowling. And Make My Trip clearly wasn't a financial decision. It was just like, I want to do my own thing and the internet is calling and this is going to be like, you know, I saw a big company like GE. Great that they were ready to give some money, would never be able to crack the internet because it was a Friday or a Saturday project in, in, in GE. Whereas a startup, especially on the internet, I think had to be 110% if that were possible of what you do, as you've seen, I mean, to get something off the ground. So for me, that was the driver. And again, first year was a honeymoon start, dream start, everything was great. And then the world imploded, dot-com bust happened, 9-11 happened, travel ended, dot-com funding, everything. You've seen travel end multiple yeah, times. Yeah, really. And in also the SARS epidemic and so, but for those next four years, I think the only thing one kept going, there was there was no money. I mean, the two years, uh, what kept really you going? no compensation. I think I was just very, very uh, fixated for two reasons. So one reason was, I think the logical reason, which is we were getting better at what we were doing literally week on week. So I always kept metrics uh, very close to heart. It was the most important ratios were improving. So conversion was improving the most important ratio and uh, repeat in our business then we were selling us india tickets repeat was very hard to measure because people came once frequency a year. is so low yeah exactly so but conversion was definitely improving coca was improving cost of customer acquisition so we, unit economics were getting slightly better so we just needed the lines to intersect revenue and cost right but we needed fuel for that so there was a logical thing that listen we are getting better at whatever we're doing people like our service they do refer us we had a referral program everything and the second, I think, was not such a logical reason, but was probably stubbornness or whatever it's called. But I think to prove to myself that, you know, I can do this because I was I was mortally afraid that if I fail now, I won't have the guts to do another venture. Because AMF Bowling, which was not my venture, had also been a failure. So I couldn't afford another one. Two dots make a line. And I, I think for me, it was a little bit more, a little bit more. And that today is, I think, my single biggest advice. It sounds like a, you know, monotone. I keep saying the same thing, like a repeat to people, to youngsters, is that just hang in there. Don't give up too early. Because so many businesses haven't seen the light of day because someone gave up too early. And it's not only my story. I remember, so uh, we were in discussion together with... Um, the two of my early stage guys, both in the downturn, who became co-founders, and I, we had an offer from a very large company. You can talk about it now, Ascendant, which was really big in travel. They owned uh, the GDS, which is called Travelport now, and all. This is way back in two thousand three or four. I had not drawn a salary for eighteen months. There was stress at home, no matter like it was all our savings, wife's savings, everything gone. And uh, these guys had taken big cuts, fifty and seventy percent cuts. They were on. And we had an offer and I was going in for this meeting. It was a luncheon meeting. Our office was in Nanchini and we decided internally, if we get an offer of 10 million, we'll sell. We'll agree. These guys started with five. Nothing. I was went on and on. And finally, we inched it up to, I think they went up to about seven, seven and a half. Something like they said seven and they mumbled a little bit more. And the meeting ended. And I was actually very relieved. But that had you this, did not have to make that had call. Had they said 10, I had said, yeah, because we had got very desperate. So I think somewhere along the way, 
we also got lucky uh, along the way that these things didn't happen. But if we didn't, we would have sold out. And I heard the same story from uh, Sachin Bansal at a conference once, where Sachin said that we agreed to sell the company for, I think, 5 or 10 million. Uh, verbally sold it. We were going through terrible times, only books that time. Came back and they had an advisor he didn't name, who he says, And Bola, you're building a good thing. Hang on, keep at it. They went on to build India's most valuable, I guess, internet business, if you think about it. So I think um, basically, you know, it, it comes from the gut and there needs to be some stubbornness. But if you are doing it, you're doing something right, just that giving up too early, that's the easiest thing you can do. And, you know, they say first sign of winter, you just say, I call it quits and all because opportunity cost, you say, is so high. That's where your linkage of the money question comes in. That's why I'm the point. The money, yeah. the... What is the opportunity cost? I mean, if you look at your lifespan of earnings, most of us will work for, you know, 30, 40 years or whatever it is. And we all know at the peak, you'll more than make up. And especially if you're building your own business, the wealth will solve for itself. But are you doing it for the money or are you doing it for the satisfaction? And anyone in the world who's been there, done that, will tell you the satisfaction is far more important because you almost don't know what to do with more money beyond a certain point. Again, it's easy to say in the early stage of life, you need the money. I was ready to sell the business. That time, I owned 55% of the business, something like that. I said, That's a lot of money, man. If you know, sell the business, get out or management had 55 or most of that was probably mine. And it would have been, I would have, I think, kicked myself every second day when someone else came up and this when travel became such a big category, online travel, and when someone else IPO'd and someone else said, oh my God, we were there, we had a better service. So living with regret is very hard. And the only way not to have that is eke it out, eke it out, eke it out till you have nothing left. And as they say, and then some. So run on fumes, do it. What will happen? So long as you're surviving, you're providing for, you know, your family, then you can at least say, listen, I tried it. It didn't work. And sometimes don't be stubborn about how you do it. I think you have to tweak models. But definitely be resolute. Maybe that's a better word than stubborn about like we are building something special. I think the rest solves for itself. And, you know, I, I'm very sure you're going to do that at Ken too. And I know you're not chasing money right now. I mean, I see what you guys are building. It's just quality. And quality means, you know, followership, readership, word of mouth, and all the good things happen. But if, it, if you don't have quality at the end of the day, I mean, there's no point. I mean, Why do you, it? Were, you were better off doing what you were doing. So I think it's the opportunity cost is, was I happier? And for me, I was miserable being a banker. I made great friends. I'm still very close to the crew there. The ABN AMRO crew set up Indusind Bank. My first boss, uh, bosses were Ramesh Sopti, Sohel Chandar, people I just absolutely adore and love. And they taught me a lot. But I was not cut out to be a banker and I was unhappy. And the simple test of being unhappy is you start looking at your, the clock. And I tell people even here, all our new joinees, if you're looking at the clock, whether it's a meeting or it's time to go home in the evening, means you're not enjoying what you're doing. It probably means... You're not enjoying you know, you what you're doing. Might as well. It's like go back yeah. to college, yeah? There were classes, you don't know where that one hour went. And there were classes where the damn clock wouldn't move. We all know that, right? I've counted seconds in some classes. It's so sad, like you just want it to end. But the meetings where you're having fun, like I'm having a blast here. I could talk for three hours. You'll miss your flight. But uh, it's, it's just you're having fun. So I think that is the most important thing for a very simple reason. Not because you're not bored or something. 
because you'll give your best when you're having fun. So we that. are value. One of our core values at work is fun at work. One of our core values. If you're not having fun, please, you're God, in the wrong. Can I just go deeper into something? Uh, yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Way, please, you should. No, no, we should continue. That's, I'm fine. Um, one of the things that you said is that I was miserable. If you're miserable at work, it's a signal, right? At some some level, right? Like I'm saying that you also said that when you were going through your toughest times, 18 months not taking a salary, you were also incredibly frustrated at what you were doing. So if I were to compare, like, you know, to, to a lot of people, it would assume from the outside that you were unhappy in both situations. While you were working for a large bank, you were unhappy. While you were working for your own startup, also one... I'm not using the word unhappy here exactly. because I know it's not unhappy. Yeah, exactly. But how does someone from the outside sense that even though you were incredibly frustrated and probably at times broke and just looking to sell out, you were not unhappy there. Yeah. And yeah. in the other context, you were actually getting a good salary, but you were unhappy. No, no, it's a, it? it's a great point. Firstly, who cares if someone from what they think from the outside, right? It's your thing. Because you've got to take that call. Mm. The only other person who matters is your family, your partner, your spouse. And you've got to come home happy. Now, if you're enjoying and you're working hard and you're very satisfied at what you're building, you're clearly not unhappy. Frustrated is also a strong word. I think you sometimes get desperate, right? Mm. Because, I mean, there's no money. That's there, is stress. there is, there but, is stress. But it's, but like it's a, good stress. That's right. Yeah, it's good <laughs> stress. Also, you're saying, listen, but you're buzzing. You're actually, you almost can't sleep with excitement, right? You and can't you wait to go, to go back. back. I don't know if you do it. Even now, sometimes when you can't sleep and you get ideas, uh, earlier it used to be pen and paper. Now you just put it on the phone as a note because you probably forget it, but you do get ideas. I mean, I, I always take oh, some I have back. colleagues who get these calls from me late in the evening and go. they're like, you know, so I have I, a brainwave. Yeah, yeah. I take time to uh, normally, uh, you know, get to bed because the mm. mind's still active. But it's great because you have those thoughts, you put them in place and also I think there's a big difference. So you can be stressed out. I think that's the right word. You can be stressed. We're stressed even today through COVID. We were damn stressed. But there was no question of what we were to do. I mean, it was, you know, there was, uh, I think, a mission critical out there. Is satisfaction a prequel to saturation? You said I, I, you're a 22-year year, yeah. young startup. Which yeah. means you're still excited about what comes next. Yeah, I think we, we're, uh, we'd we like to think like a startup. But what do you mean by saturation? Sorry. I mean, if you're satisfied at some level, you also feel that you've been there, done that, you've achieved. Yeah, yeah, There's nothing done. more yeah. to get. So, I mean, a lot of people like you know, ask is that if you're satisfied, what keeps you still right. hungry okay, and it. driven it, yeah. as well? Yeah. Well, I mean, the fact that I've gone non-executive right now obviously means that you know, I didn't, I and I asked myself this question for a long, long time, right? But I think my calling of doing other stuff, I think it's about that, I don't know if that theory you read about, you know, just one life, many careers kind of thing. So I was introduced to this by, uh, I think it's Benjamin Franklin's theory. I haven't read it, but Ashish Dhawan spoke about this. Ashish is someone who I hugely respect. And he was telling me about he wanted to quit at 40 when he wanted to do something for education in India and Ashoka. And it got a little delayed. But, you know, if there's, I mean, it's amazing what but he's But he didn't done. really quit. 
the quit was like in that no, sense totally that he's quit. yeah he quit. quit at the top of his game and uh, he quit his fund at the top of his game at Chrysalis and he's just totally is 100% no, I, I mean, my my point being that quit is the wrong term to use here because Ashish is still yeah yeah what I meant oh yeah he works right. he works 18 it's hours a day it's just a definition no no what I meant was he gave that up so mm, different career right. and he said but we have one life so I think that was kind of my colleague uh, which is like listen I there's much more I want to do and maybe at 50, I started saying, oh my God, one will actually one day get old. Till 50, you never even thought you'd get old. Uh, and maybe then you start saying, listen, I want to make sure I have enough time to do many other things which are part of my plan. Also, I think I had the luxury of having a co-founder like Rajesh. If I didn't, you can't even think of that. So it also depends on your setup, right? If your setup is such, and very few people have understood this. I met a few of my... Um, you know, called ex uh, kind of seniors from school. We had a reunion function this uh, weekend. And we were just talking about it. And he says, one guy just got it straight away. He says, oh, wow, you've done that. That means you have a, you know, the team's well set up. I said, yeah, there's no other way you can. Otherwise, how can you even think about it, right? If So I think it's how you set it up. And that came naturally to me, Rowan, because I think I'd worked in three professional companies. So I was very comfortable delegating. Also, as a personality trait, I don't think I... You know, hanker like like I know a lot of founders who love to control or you know to use the the term they they could be control freaks and they're phenomenal. I mean, they're fantastic, but that's not me. So I'm quite happy to delegate to good people. And over time, you start leaning on them, trusting them more and more. So I think I had that luxury, so I could do this. So therefore, I think there's still a big charter for the company to do. And I may not even be the best guy to do it with. Like, I'll keep on giving my little two-bit direction, bad ideas, good ideas, brainwaves. I'll keep kind of bombarding them with it. But uh, I think we have some incredible guys out here. So hopefully we we will still uh, do that. What kind of people do you find it most difficult to work with and why? I, I, I think individual uh, players, uh, non-team players. Uh, I think also people who are not transparent. So, you know, it's very difficult to w work with people who are uh, going to nod in agreement, but they don't really agree. So, I, I really encourage people who, you know, again, in the whole interview, so the conviction, like, disagree, disagree, disagree now. Yeah, it's like, you know, Exactly that, right? So either we disagree, we have a healthy discussion, we have a debate, we have everything else. Either you convince me or I convince you. But if you're going to be kind of poker face and say, I uh, this thing, but you're not really convinced, which means you really won't put your passion behind it, which means it'll never get done. And therefore, it goes back to my earlier point of taking people along. So I'd much rather have people who are openly saying, listen, Deep, I, I don't think it's a great idea at all. Because of this, 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 this. This is a cultural problem because a lot of people, especially younger folks, subtly or otherwise avoid conflict. They see this as like, you know, calling out something, mm. giving feedback on something as conflict avoidance. So therefore, especially with younger startups and newer startups, which have younger Gen Z employees as well, mm. it's harder no matter how much you try yeah. and convince people to counter or disagree, it's hard because so unless it's a 
it's an org wide cultural thing where more and more people are disagreeing in public and people see that so how do you do yeah. that i'd make my trip so i just disagree with one thing what you said mm. i find the problem harder with older people oh really i find okay. the younger easier well one we have a and i i've instrumental of setting this up in setting this up this is uh, something which i call immersion which is everyone who joins goes through a week of uh, this thing it used to be a one day two day induction which is you know as we've grown i think it's too little so you have a full week and in that week you're introduced to all parts of the organization and all senior leaders come and speak to you and some for an hour some for half an hour and rajesh me we'll both spend an hour hour and a half with these people all new joinees in their first month of joining we try to do it sometimes first or second month but as soon as possible and the things i reinforce are this a you started with a clean slate so wherever you worked you worked what you've done you've done you probably learned a lot you probably this thing great time to start afresh and to start anew we know nothing about you beyond your cv and that cv really doesn't matter once you've cleared it doesn't matter whether you came from a top university or you came from a very second or third year you got through the interviews which itself and we have a fairly strenuous uh, process you got through you're here everyone's equal in fact you have more pressure if you come from a better uni but you're at the same this thing now it's your performance which is going to set your reputation build your reputation and it takes a long time to build it it takes very short time to destroy it and start doing great work and put your signature on everything and people get to know you know they'll start relying on you and everything give them that whole cycle the second thing is about please 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 and you will see this you know stand up for what you believe in anyone who's done well in this company has conviction no one's a yes person yes guy yes woman out there and they are solid they are leaders so i do tell people and again it's i don't even look i mean i it's i know what i want to tell them i believe there are two kinds of people at work they either order makers or order takers and it's probably the ratio is 10 to 90 the very few people who are very comfortable actually making decisions 90% of janta if not more is actually comfortable being told what to do hame bata do hum wo karenge which is whole thing about initiative so if you don't take the initiative how are you going to but it's not like from day one so please learn the ropes the first 3 months 6 months ask dumb questions ask any kind of question you want at work everything's kosher you have colleagues you have buddies you have manager you have an hr spoc you have all the system safety net you don't get answers please come to me door is always open come in ask anything you want then your first job is to become a master at what you do you have to be as good as anyone else in 6 months at what you do or 8 months 9 months and and then you have to improve the process only then can you put your hand up and say i want more i want to do it better and then you start actually saying listen we can do this this and this and why what, aren't we doing what this? is that time from the time someone has joined till like you know where you feel that that's an amount of time on average i know there'll be exceptions yeah, yeah. where people typically will they've internalized what the company's culture yeah. is they figured out what their role is they figured out processes where they can actually start to now excel and push things forward yeah, i i don't know there's a huge range reason mm. being we talk about freshers to people who are joining with 20 years of experience that's true yeah so all kinds <laughs> and secondly we just talk about inherently confident not confident some people are also like people quick gun morogans right mm. they want that sab kuch badal do ye change kar do wo change kar do yeah. and all that so we don't want that so but but i think um I honestly think it takes a year for you to learn the org and the org to learn you. It's really really I think how do you make the org patient in this journey because often yeah. when we talk about this we always think that during this one year you the new employee have to be patient and 
But often what also happens, especially during the last two, three years, is there's a lot of impatience which is built yeah. up into organizations yeah, yeah, yeah. where you have this, I think, unfair expectation yeah. of performance, like, you know, where... Yeah, yeah. And again, I'll just qualify that by saying it depends on the function. So you get a subject matter expert coming in finance, he can hit the ground running or she can hit the yeah. ground running. Legal also, very similar. You know, Samir joined us not, I don't know, Samir, it's been over a year. Wow. So about that time. But, you know, he's an expert at what he does. But then he's also taken on a new charter. He's also doing advocacy and he's working. So that was his new excitement, what he wants to do. So that takes more time. But this, he was telling us in the, you know, first month of coming in. And we wanted to hear outside in. Not that we didn't have. We had mm -hmm. someone fantastic for comms. But he came in and he says this outside in, which is very fresh. Because even today, he was telling me about things which he sees from the outside in. Which is very interesting. I'm never going to learn that from someone who's been working with me for 10 years or 15 years or whatever. But let's say a classic area where we get young engineer, work two years, MBA, come into product function. But the kid has never done product. That's going to take longer, right? Someone's going to have the patience to teach you product. And that's where leaders have to take out time for mentoring where they see sparks and even otherwise. Because how can you expect the person to learn everything? So I believe you can, your maximum learning is through osmosis. You sit in this room, like today, if you had a junior person from your company just joined in this room, and I had a junior person in my company who joined me as a real EA, classic EA, and I had someone who's fantastic turned entrepreneur who joined from Ashoka, and his only thing was, I want to work with you. And I said, sure, like, I, you know, I was a little worried, oh my God, this guy's going to be shadowing me. So it was split between me and Rajesh, but... Turned out to be a star. He shadowed us, literally worked with us for six months and then we gave him different projects. Imagine if these two kids were in this room. In this one and a half hour, they would probably learn, if they were fully tuned in, more than they would learn in probably one and a half weeks, this thing. Because it's a crash course. So for me and all my previous places, I just love taking new people along for those critical meetings. So you're going to go meet, let's say... Patu Keswani of Lemon Tree, who's like one of the sharpest hoteliers you'll ever meet. Phenomenal guy. I go and meet him. I learn from him. He gives me what I call the masterclasses. So for two hours, he'll give us a masterclass on hotel economics, everything else. And I say, listen, let's, let's take four of our guys along. Because they, he will teach them, boy, I tell him shamelessly. I say, Patu, they're all here because we all want to learn from you. It's win-win. So leaders and managers have to make it their mission to say, listen, I've got to bring them up to speed. And not forget where you learned the most. So I remember I learned the most right in the beginning. Whenever you get into a new job, you're super excited. You want to change the world. Your first job, you want to change the world. The next job also, you say, listen, yeah, wow, I've learned this. Now I want to change a lot of things. I could do this. You have to get those opportunities. And some will respond, some won't. So another great example is reviews. So we do reviews, which is, you know, PPPs, product planning, whatever, uh, we have these kind of uh, long reviews, which are, uh, we tell people don't make fancy presentations. I learned in G that presentations waste a lot of time, present off your Excel, because that's where the real, you know, PPTs are basically for bullshit. And <laughs> Excels are the real stuff. So use your Excels, present through that and everything else. Now, I love calling, when I used to run these, I would have 30, 40 guys in our big boardroom, which you probably saw, I'd fill it in. And A, there's no secret. I mean, you have to trust your people. B2C business, everything's out there anyway. If someone's a crook, then you have anyway a problem, right? What will they do with it? They'll leave, they'll this thing, but the devil's in the detail. It's not like we are, we don't have the Coke formula out there where we're telling everyone that. Out of that 30, 40, 
actually 20 are not required, but I'm hoping they learn and tell them. I believe 10, you know, of them, 50% of them will get turned on and excited about it. Some will be maybe overawed and some couldn't care. And those are the ones who will say, wow, these are the discussions because there the debates are happening. There the fights are happening. Why this? Why not this? Prioritization. Everything else is going on. And your other point that you made is what they will see happen there. That CTO and CPO are fighting, which is fine. But CTO is having a nice discussion with CEO and saying, boss, can't be done. Can't be done because this is how you package it in this thing. Another person is saying he's seeing that kid is seeing the frustrations, the kid is seeing the tugs and the pulls. The learning, if you want to learn, that is your crash course in management and in company culture. Yeah, it completely is. Yeah. But it also segues into the last, I think, let's say the uh, COVID-induced time where yeah. a lot of what you're saying cannot be done efficiently online because online is on appointment like, you know, it's it's a very transactional kind of this thing. So It was terrible. But I, I look at, like all entrepreneurs, I think we should see the glass half full. What mm -hmm. if COVID happened pre-Zoom? I mean, that's what yeah, my answer to everyone is. I said, listen, Zoom and company saved the day. Even But well, you're back today to work from office. You won't find a seat. I mean, you've just taken on more space. Hmm. Bangalore is a bit of a challenge. Getting techies back at work is a little bit more of a challenge. It's an environmental thing because the overall others are also yeah, not yeah, doing it. Here, we, we don't have seats. Now we're fighting for seats. So I think like some people can work one day out of this thing. Listen, very simple. The day we saw uh, bars and nightclubs full, we said, you jolly well come back to work. <laughs> Everyone's bloody going out to restaurants and bars with this. So that's all crap. So we got everyone back. But I still think video conferencing and the kind of thing, it saved the day net-net. Of course, it was, you know, 50% as effective, whether it's 40, 60, 70. It was better than zero. Better than the con call. Imagine if we were talking on this, um, uh, you know, this phone, this polycom. I yeah, mean, half the time you couldn't figure out who's speaking do. or what they're saying. Exactly. And the presentation. So I, I really think, uh, you know, VCs have saved the day and especially a really good VC with a good connection. What gets my goat is people who turn off their cameras when this thing and I, this, this is not done. Either we are all there or we're not there. I mean, it's crazy. It's very convenient to have your camera off, but then you're not there. Basically, you're giving a sign. Now listen, I'm like, whatever. Whether It doesn't matter what you look like, but at least have your camera on. So I think uh, you have to have your own set and discipline. But uh, it was it was terrible. I mean, look at the people who joined during COVID. What culture are you going to build? What connects? So that really suffered. This walking in, this whole coffee together, chai together, cigarette together, you know, lunch together, just building the bond, coming, going together. That was just just gone so it's i think we lost a whole you know two years in that whole process that was sad but i think we've got to look at the positives yeah. of it we're back Absolutely. everyone's back you know revenge travel is a reality i mean you'll see Absolutely. it when you get yeah. on to the yeah. airport today again and delhi airport oh my god oh by the way i've been warned yeah it's serious it's serious what are some of the phrases that you're known for within make my trip are there pet phrases that like you know the people might hear from you when they come for a review meeting when you're angry, when you're excited, I, are there any such I'm things? I'm sure there are, but you'll have to get these from the others. But yeah, I used to lose my temper a lot more. Last few years, it's reserved. It does happen once in a while. Is that because Rajesh has taken off a lot of the... No, I think it's just age and maturity. Uh, I typically never curse at work. 
but uh, I think once in a while, if we have an all men's forum going on, maybe the occasional one, but I don't believe in that culture. I think it's uh, it's not the right culture. I've seen it happen in many places. I think it, uh, you know, someone's going to get offended with it. And it's definitely not on if you have ladies around. So I think there's decorum. But uh, with old teams and, you know, if you're off sites and all, you get casual, which is lovely. I mean, that's the best part. So the first thing we did, actually right in the thick of COVID, we did a leadership team offsite. And we got all our Bangalore guys here and we just went. We did it out on the outdoors. We took a hotel close to uh, right here in open air. And we did all our meetings in the open. Some guys with masks, some guys without. By the evening, everyone had their masks down and all. And But we tested everyone before and after. So we, we said we have to bring it back. And it has to start from us. And then we did more and more like that. And it really, I think, worked out well. We did a pretty large one in uh, 70 people in that place. Uh, ITC Grand Bharat. Again, we tested people, we did, and it went off well. So I think, and in that testing before, mm. actually one or two uh, were positive. positive. And, yeah, so there's always a little risk. But by that time, I think also Delta was over and people were realizing it's okay. milder, etc. So I don't know what are these phrases, but you'll get them from, you should ask my colleagues. There must be some, sure. I'm sure. While you were CEO, what is it that you felt you added most value to make my trip as the CEO? Like if there were one thing that was like you know what that yeah. you uniquely brought to make my trip what was it if you could reduce it down to that i'm not i'm yeah. sure it's not one thing but still yeah i i think for me it's around people and culture so it's really rallying people i think attracting the right people and retaining them and then uh getting them to move together motivating them i think that would be are they we talked about attracting people to make my trip do you have any favorite open-ended questions that you ask people when you meet them when you're assessing whether they you should like you know consider bringing them to join make my trip that reveals yeah yeah always what, what are some I, of your I, I favorite open ended saying, questions i just love saying if you were ceo what would you change about the company I and mean, very often i'll just start with that like mm. straight and i'm i'll go on with that like mm. literally and if people don't have a point of view on that then they're not i mean even thought about the company like that you've got to have a point of view right and mm. i do want to critique i think a critique is very important especially a business like ours who cannot have a critique about like if I were going for an interview with make my trip today and I was whatever else I was doing I would have spent a lot of time on the app on the website I would have done this thing I would have five suggestions and people have a lot of ideas so it's not like they don't the trick is not to ask the question and to get five answers the trick is to figure out which one of theirs is genuinely theirs and that is the second level and the third level saying and why and why got it that five wise kind of thing yeah exactly so i love that by the way and so you know it's very easy to give a laundry list i mean there are so many things we could do better but why and then the prioritization is a great question so these five are there but which one would you change first got it and uh, and and you, i get great inputs i think it's uh, and then the voice it's thought obviously happens. yeah it's and a the voice thought happens after for you also right even after an interview the voice thought happens so you're kind of solving it on two sides you're assessing them and getting feedback as all well all the time i i love flights for this reason only i will talk to everyone my left on my right aage piche everyone shamelessly tell us about your kids view of the world how different is it compared to when you were their age i think it's totally different so my daughter's finished her undergrad just like right now and uh, i think it's just far more nuanced more mature view when i finished my undergrad i think all i was focused on was you know my mba and getting in that and that had already happened and tumbling into that and just like 
आई डोंट थिंक आई वाज इवन सीरियसली थिंकिंग अबाउट अ जॉब आई सेड एमबीए हो गया अब देखा जाएगा बट आल्सो इट्स द काइंड ऑफ कोर्स सो शी वाज लकी इनफ टू गो टू अ टॉप लिबरल आर्ट्स स्कूल ओवरसीज बट आई सी आई इंटरेक्ट विद अ लॉट ऑफ किड्स फ्रॉम अशोका हियर बिकॉज़ आई एम इन्वॉल्व्ड देयर एंड आई सी देम दे जस्ट सो इनफॉर्म्ड and evolved about different things and their choices that they are making all the time of what kind of courses to do what not to do what kind of different careers they also have many more options so net net i actually think it's much tougher for this generation and you'll see that as your teenager another kind of you know 8 8 10 years grows up that because we had very few choices and i'm obviously older than you but i had there were four or five routes to take if you came from a professional family my dad was in private service all his life my mom was a teacher all her life you had to stand on your own feet right there was no business etc it was really that classical you know medicine engineering uh ca mba kind of these four things and maybe a fifth i don't even know what and everyone okay maybe architecture is nice that's it like that yeah. was it and today i think the choices would be Don't even know how many, maybe thirty, forty different career options, and you can do well in each. I do find most parents, at least the kind I know, being supportive of different choices. I find youngsters thinking about development sector so early, maybe more from a shoka and otherwise, but impact the world. I mean, we never thought about these things till a very later stage of life. Like, how is this going to impact the world, the environment? What is my impact? So I think they're thinking about impact much more already. and while it might seem like they're more casual and they you know are more like chilled out etc i think it's very clear like us as parents have a much i think closer and a friendlier relationship with our kids than our, we had with our parents for obvious reasons things are changing and you know it's it's much closer but they're actually uh, pretty clear that they have to do something impactful so i find the kids more mature today uh, for sure how do you feel the lack of adversity or deprivation will play out with yeah. you know this generation or because that's you know to that's go back to your part. own history or like you know mine or any of that yeah, this yeah, thing yeah. right that that's one thing while the generation has a plethora of options and awareness what many of them yeah. largely lack is yeah. deprivation or adversity no it's a brilliant point ron and i think we all as parents worry about that right and you can't create that it's unfair like they didn't Do anything. It cannot be an. Yeah, it can't be an assimilation. Yeah, and you got what you got, right? I mean, I look at in our time, some of the kids who grew up probably more entitled, etc., etc., and, and or rather just had much more. I think it came down to individual. Also, came down to where they were reinforced with the belief that sure you might have a backup. I mean, you won't be out on the streets, but you're not going to have any level of satisfaction if you don't build your own career. i think as parents even if we are able to give them much more than our parents were able to give us from a material point of view i think that's the message we've got to keep reinforcing and they get it themselves and i do tell them i have many friends who grew up in family businesses and it seemed very luxurious and they went overseas to study when it wasn't fashionable and came back and dare i say most of them are not that happy now because you know you get muddled in that business so many of them are mired in these business tangles and fights and things like that takes away all the energies of the best part of your life where you're fighting with cousins and uncles and everything else it, it i've seen it play out almost everyone who's more satisfied and happy are the folks who made their own lives 
And so now you can't simulate that, but you have to reinforce that. Listen, we have seen this and, you know, I'm amazed how kids think about these things. And we have these discussions where they actually talking about friends that we have about so-and-so and what they are doing and what this, this thing. We never did that. I mean, I think we were either blissfully unaware or it was not our place to even have those conversations. Uh, you know, I think we spent a good amount of our time cleaning our dad's shoes and cleaning the car and scooters and everything else. I think that was, yeah. but it's great that they can have this. And that means they're very observant of this. And they're really observing, um, you know, things. So I, I, I think the formula for all of us as parents, and I'm no, I'm no kind of guru in this, is to keep a very open, frank, this thing, no bars, talk about anything, discuss every and everything because there's so much going on in their head. And, uh, uh, you know, just be there as their kind of um, sounding blocks for everything. You know, guides, but more as supports on the side, like when they're falling, but let them stumble. And obviously help them kind of get up again. But we all have to go through that process. But this generation is definitely way ahead of like on the average, way ahead. Now, the flip side of it, we can argue like our CHRO son <clears throat> got into uh, IIT Mumbai. And I was telling him, Yuvraj, you don't realize what a big deal it is for a city boy to get an IIT today. Absolutely. It doesn't happen because it only happens from tier two, tier three, quota factory, blah, blah, blah. This is how it happens. In our time, it was entirely different. I said, you know, hats off to this kid who can do it today because he's competing with someone who for the last four years of his or her life has only had one goal in mind. Ek lakshay kota factory mein jaake IIT mein crack karna hai. Versus the kid who has all the distractions, you know, friends here and playstations going on and TV and satellite and everything else. So I think that has changed maybe. <clears throat> I think the focus on rigor, hard work, uh, good old-fashioned, this thing, what we think were values has changed to smart work. <clears throat> and again, Chat GPT is writing your essays now, right? <laughs> so who knows how they will, but but that's the real world also. I mean, we did a lot of rote. I went through ISC, ICSC, and they were I think, great kind of this thing, but they, the open book exam is par for the course, but it doesn't mean it's easy. It's actually tougher, but that's the simulation of reality. Because again, I tell all my new joinees at work, Guys, you don't, guess what, that open, that exam you had, competitive exam, was actually not gauging intelligence. It was actually gauging speed. That's not relevant today. Whether yes. you put in one hour extra or one day extra in that article you write or in that product spec that you write, doesn't matter. The output matters. So it's really up to you. Gone. gone. You might have missed that entrance because it was a, you were up against like a lot of guys who were just happened to have a great day that day because they had a little extra coffee in the morning. Who knows, right, how the brain worked for you that morning. Yeah. So I think the reality today is they know the resources they have to their disposal is how you're going to use them. And yeah, maybe attention span is what I worry about. So what I worry about is attention span of this generation. And it's a function of just so many distractions. How long can you stay committed not only to work, not only to a hobby, I hope they'll stay committed to, you know, each other and to partners. So I worry for those, those kind of social aspects because I think tolerance is less. Like, right. it's my space and my time. Like, that's the scary part. Thank you so much, uh, Deep, for taking the time out today. Thank you. It's been, been a real pleasure, pleasure speaking to you. Again. Yeah, it's been great fun. Thank you so much. Hello again, it's Rohan. If you enjoyed the episode, 
then you might enjoy working inside the journalism organization that produces this and many other podcast stories and newsletters each week. And we at The Ken are hiring for multiple ambitious roles, including podcast hosts and podcast producers. If you want to work alongside some of India's and Southeast Asia's sharpest and nicest writers, editors, podcasters, engineers, and product makers, check out our openings at theken.com slash careers. I'll see you again in a fortnight.